Well, you might notice I look a little different than Wayne. I'm happy to be here in front of you to share the message. Um, hopefully you had some students in your Sunday school class this morning. What a, a brave thing it was for them to stand up. And we uh, want to make sure that we affirm their doing that. Um, thank you to our chapel choir who sang for us already and for all of the students who have already led an, in front of us in this service uh, both now and earlier at the 9 o'clock service. Uh, thank you to Dr. Splon for even allowing me to get up here in front of you guys. Um, a lot of people that I respect, I said this earlier, have stood up here in this pulpit and preached. Uh, Sarah and I are just so thrilled that we get to do ministry here and we get to continue to grow under Dr. Splon's leadership. Um, this morning we're going to be continuing in his sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. We will be opening up to Matthew chapter 6 verses 1 through 4. If you're using your pew Bible, you can turn to page 684. 684. It says this, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give, give to the needy. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. David Platt, who is a popular American preacher, tells a story about this old-time evangelist named Billy Sunday. Uh, Billy Sunday was an evangelist in the late 19th, early 20th century, sort of the forerunner to crusaders like Billy Graham. And Billy Sunday was sort of what you might consider a bombastic style preacher. He would use slang-filled language in his sermons. He would do skits. Um, he would even, as a former baseball player, he was known to slide across the platform as he was making a point. Somebody after the 9 o'clock service said, I don't remember who my preacher was growing up, but it sounds like Billy Sunday was. <laughs> Billy Sunday was also a vocal critic of lots of the vices in his day and age in the culture. And the two things that Billy Sunday was most concerned with were the vices of card playing and dancing. He would often warn his congregation that uh, card playing and dancing were doing more to damage the spiritual lives of his congregants than even the bars were. He said that dancing was simply just a hugging match set to music. This is the kind of person Billy Sunday was. And to us, we might laugh at such antiquated notions if literally only all we had to worry about was dancing and card playing. Um, but to Billy Sunday, these were life and death issues. So the question is, why were they? Because to Billy Sunday, things like dancing and card playing they indicated separation points. There was supposed to be, in Billy Sunday's mind, a clear line of demarcation between those who believe and those who don't believe. Jesus has been doing a little bit of this for us in the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew and his Sermon on the Mount. He's been helping us to see the differences between those who believe and those who don't believe. But in actuality, Jesus is even getting deeper into the heart of the issue, and, and Jesus is showing us separation points between the Pharisees and true disciples of Christ. 
Jesus points out that whereas the Pharisees were really great at conforming outwardly to the law, on the inside, they left much to be desired. Jesus would point out that the righteousness of the kingdom starts out in our hearts, and it produces change there first. Jesus keys in on the Pharisees many times in his ministry, and based on the way that he talks about them, uh, calling them vipers and such, you would think that they were a group of no-good ne'er-do-wells on the outskirts of society, uh, but in fact, they were the faithful of the faithful. The Pharisees, in modern-day terms, if we were to put it in modern-day terms, they never missed a Sunday. They had their perfect attendance record certificates. They gave a lot of money to their congregation. They um, even probably observed things like Lent. Uh, and you can bet that you would know what they were fasting from. They put so much work into their religious actions. So you can imagine the surprise of Jesus' hearers at the Sermon on the Mount when back in chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. If your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so I ask you this morning, do you think that we could actually do enough righteous acts to exceed those of the Pharisees? Probably not. They were, they were A-class, man. They were top of their game. So what Jesus is pointing at is that the Pharisees do all the right things on the outside, but on the inside, they're spiritually dead. At another point in the Gospels, Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. That is, on the outside, they're spiritually ornate and beautiful, but if you take the time to go inside, they are filled with the dead. Simply doing is not enough. Simply doing is not enough. Jesus wants his followers to understand that the motive behind their religious expression is what gives it its meaning. The motive behind their religious expression is what gives it its meaning. Motivation is defined as that which moves one toward an action. That which moves one toward an action or that which impels or changes our very being. The Bible has a lot to say about the motivations of a Christian. I'm sure none of you would be surprised to, to find out that our motivation should be exactly the opposite of someone who doesn't believe in Christ. We are supposed to be changed or impelled by this thing called the gospel. What Christ has done for us that we can't do for ourselves, that is supposed to be our motivation. David talks about his motivation in the Psalms, in Psalm 40. He says, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Your law is within my heart. Jesus echoed this sentiment later on, wanting to do the will of his Father, the one who sent him, even to death on a cross. All that Christians do should be motivated by this desire to glorify God for what he has done for us. All that we do should be motivated by what God has done for us. The world, on the other hand, is motivated by self, the all-about-me syndrome, if you will, that is usually indicated by self-obsession, self-determination, and self-worship. 
Sin wants the glory for itself. It wants to take God off of the throne of our life and put us there in, its, in his place. Ever since the Garden of Eden in the beginning, uh, when Eve took a bite of the apple, we have been driven by ourself, thinking that what we know is better than what God knows, thinking that what we want to do with our lives is better than God's plan for us. And it's been humankind's downfall ever since we've desired to take that glory for ourselves. And even this morning as we gather together and worship, there's a temptation for us to do something similar here in our religious activities, to take the spotlight off of God and put it onto ourselves. And it can be real easy. Be real easy. This might have prompted Charles Spurgeon, who was a, another old-time preacher, to say this about our motivation. Charles Spurgeon said, if, if others cannot read our motives, then we ought to at least examine them carefully for ourselves. Day by day, with extreme rigor, we must search our hearts. Motive is vital to the goodness of an action. Motive is vital to the goodness of an action. It can be hard for me especially to check my motives, to confront why it is I'm doing something, especially when it comes to religious activities. The business of life pushes these kind of introspective issues to the back burner, and you hear people say they're just going through the motions. People who say this are just articulating this idea that they're just doing what they have to do because they know that it's what's expected of them. They're expected to show up at church on Sunday, so they do it. They know that they're supposed to wear a certain thing, so they do it. They know that they're supposed to give. They know that someday they're supposed to become a deacon. Life gets crazy. We lose sight of our motivation, and we just shift it into autopilot and go through the motions. There is no more life behind our motivation. There's no more life behind the reasons that we're doing these things. We just know that we're expected to do them. Much of the Sermon on the Mount thus far has been about helping the hearers of the Sermon on the Mount to know that they're supposed to follow the intent of the law, not just the letter. God wants his people to follow the intent of the law. And in Matthew 6, Jesus shifts his focus away from sort of general life to the religious activities of his listeners, the foundations or, or pillars, if you will, of the religious life. He contrasts for us two different people, the hypocrite and, for our purposes this morning, the disciple. So let's take another look back at chapter 6 together. Turn there with me and let's read verses 1 and 2 together. Verses 1 and 2. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by them. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. The word hypocrite in the Greek refers to actors that would perform in plays. 
They would wear different kinds of masks to portray different characters. And a hypocrite was someone who would wear one specific mask on stage. They were wearing a costume to portray one uh, particular character. And then they'd run backstage, change their mask, change their costume, and come out. And the same person would portray two different characters. Uh, Jesus is using the word hypocrite here in a similar context. If we can suspend our disbelief for a moment and just picture the synagogues and the streets of old-time Jerusalem as a stage, then these hypocrites, Jesus was saying, are just actors. They're wearing a mask on the outside, doing what they know that they're supposed to do, but on the inside, they're someone completely different. But why would they do this? Why would they make all the noise? Why would they call all eyes onto themselves? Jesus points us towards the motivation of the desire to want to be honored by others. The hypocrite wants people to see them participating in the religious activity of giving, but they are only interested in building up their own reputation. The hypocrite is not interested in giving God the glory because, as we can see, the hypocrite turns all eyes onto themselves. There's no pointing towards God the Father. They want the trumpets to play, and they want to be recognized for the good thing that they have done not for the good that God has done in their life. Jesus is quite harsh when he says that if that's what you're looking for, if you're looking for the honor of others, if you're looking for the acclaim and the accolades and the things that come along with doing good things for other people, then that is your reward, and you receive it here on earth. Jesus then introduces us to another character that for our purposes this morning we will call the disciple. And what sets the disciple apart from the hypocrite? We read this in verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And then your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. There is a distinct contrast in the presentation of these two people. The hypocrite uh, blows the trumpets in the public square and lets other people see what they are doing. And the disciple does what he does in secret, discreetly, so that only the father who sees them in secret can see. The hypocrite is giving so that others will recognize what they are doing, and the disciple is giving because it's an outflowing of the Spirit's work in their life. It's an outflowing of the Spirit's work in their life. Giving is such a natural part of the spiritual life of a disciple that it's possible that as they're going through life, going through the motions of what being a disciple looks like, their hands aren't even aware of what they're doing because it's just happening. So there is a difference between the presentation, between the two, but there's also a a very distinct difference in the motivation of the two people. It seems as though that Jesus is saying that the disciples shouldn't want all eyes on them. Right? He contrasts this person who's super loud with someone who is really secret and discreet. We shouldn't want all eyes on us because we know that everything that we've been given is a gift from God. Every dime in our bank account has been given to us to steward in God's great kingdom. The disciple doesn't even want there to be a hint or an impression that their giving is an outworking of their own power and resources. 
Because they understand the gospel so fully that they know that without Jesus, they are dead in their trespasses. Jesus sets the example for us. The way that he is obedient to God and everything that he does, wanting to follow his Father's will. He always did the Father's will, motivated to pleasing him. Even to death on a cross, Paul says. In Philippians, he became obedient unto death. Our motivations, especially in religious practices, should come from a place of thankfulness for what God has done for us. Thankfulness for what he is continuing to do for us. Knowing that we have been brought from death to life. In closing, I wanted to point out the fact that when I first started reading this passage, I was sort of struck by a seeming contradiction in Jesus' words at the Sermon on the Mount. Um, So if you will, flip with me to chapter 5 in the Gospel of Matthew, just one chapter before. When Jesus says this in chapter 5, verse 14, chapter 5, verse 14, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus is saying here, let your light shine, dude. Don't put yourself under a bowl. Put yourself up on a stand, in fact, so that you can be seen like you're a city lit up on a hill. And today, we read that we should give so discreetly and secretly that only God knows about it. And it can seem to be a contradiction until you realize that Jesus is pointing out the motivation in each one of these passages. The disciple, Jesus says in chapter 5, will lead others to see their good deeds, but to what? Glorify their Father in heaven. There's the motive. Whereas the hypocrite, when they give, they give to be honored by others. Charles Spurgeon finishes his statement on motivations with this. He says, we will not suspect our motivations if we can help it. Evidence must usually be very powerful before it can convince us that we are being governed by sordid aims. The stream of generosity, however, does not always spring from gratitude to God. Zeal is not always the result of deep-seated faith. The highest wisdom, then, suggests that we spend much patient and impartial consideration upon the fundamental matter of the heart's intent in relationship to our actions. Church, if we aren't careful... We can allow all of our religious activities, especially, to become about self-gain. We look for ways that we can earn favor from God. We look for ways that we can earn status with one another. And ultimately, we look for ways to gain the glory for ourselves. Matthew begins this passage with a loud warning. He says, be careful. ESV translates it as beware. Because we all have to be aware of the reasons that we're doing things. 
what is pushing us towards an action? What is impelling us? What is changing us towards something in our very being? Our fallen nature wants us to do good things for the wrong reasons. So we have to be vigilant, evaluating our motives for why we're here. Letting our light shine before others, but being aware to give all the glory back to God. Will you pray with me this morning? Dear Lord, thank you so much for your son Jesus, for his example and how he laid down his life and wanted to follow your will for his life. Thank you for your word. Help it to to continue to shape us, to format us. Thank you for the righteousness of Jesus that is ours because of his death on the cross. Help us not to be deceived into thinking that we can do any of this on our own and not to be deceived that we're even doing things for the right reasons, Father. Convict us in the areas of our life that we have, that we have started to just go through the motions in. Convict us, Lord. Change us. Thank you for your, your word and your son. It's in Jesus' name that we all pray. Amen.